Well, welcome this morning. Uh, welcome if you're new. Uh, my name is Keith. I'm the lead and teaching pastor here. Uh, and um, it's great to have everyone together this morning in worship. Uh, if you're new and you're needing something or can't find something, there's uh, all sorts of people walking around that are happy to help you. Feel free to just ask. Uh, there's an info piano back there with lots to discover on it. I invite you to explore that. If, um, yeah, if you want to know how to get to more plugged in at Grassroots in the you know, coming uh, weeks and months, uh, info piano is a great place to start. So uh, it's great to see you. And this is, uh, if, you, if you don't know, this is my kind of second year here at Grassroots. We're just beginning my second year. And I was thinking about last year and all of the, the various highlights of last year. And the, one of the things that was a super highlight for me was there is a, a meal in here in the springtime with the Muslim community, the masjid. Uh, there's a group of Christians and a group of Muslims in here. And, and what was beautiful is we had this great awareness that we worship different gods. We worship different gods. Uh, but uh, there is a commonality in our, uh, in our sort of ability to understand our devotion. If you, if you get to know Muslim people, they're the very devout people. And Christians, we're very devout people. And there's a commonality here. And part of, part of what, you know, why we did this is to say um, we recognize not only that um, you know, Jesus, Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is the, the Savior and the Lord of, of the universe. But we do this because the Muslim community here in town is a group of vulnerable people. And uh, they're a group of people who have um, mostly uh, found their way here as refugees and found their way here as refugees in a, in a pl- coming from a place where their lives had been shattered. And as we get to know our Lord Jesus, one of the things we find profoundly about him is everywhere he went, he began to shelter vulnerable people. And he asked us to follow suit, even people that we may not understand or know. And I remember in this time, there was a moment where there was a group of Muslim guys sitting over, you know, talking to one another, and a lot of them didn't know much English. And I, I was a bit scared to go talk because I didn't know much Kurdish or Arabic. And so I thought, ah, how's this going to go? This is going to be awkward. And I remembered back to a time when I was in uh, traveling uh, in, in another country, and I was at a conference, a youth conference, where uh, there was some Russian kids my age, we were 18, 19 years old, and there were some Russian kids that were there, and they didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak any Russian. And I thought, how are we going like, to get to know each other? We had four or five days of getting to know each other. It was kind of awkward at first, didn't know really what to say, didn't know how to communicate. But I remember one of the, so we didn't really talk to each other. We didn't really kind of meet up. And it was the second day, one of the Russian kids said, come over here. I was like, okay. And he, go, and he goes, like this. I was like, okay, so I put my hands out like this. He's like, no, 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 put your hands out like this. And so I put my hands out like this. No, I put my hands out like this. And he put his hands underneath mine. And before I knew it, he did this, bam, and slapped the top of my hands. And I was like, oh, I know this game. And so, so you know, you, 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 you were on, you, you know, you're slapping the top until you miss, and you have to pull away, right? And so two or three times he slapped the top of my hands, and then finally he missed, and then I was the one that got to slap the top of his hands. And I recognized that there are moments where even though you don't know the language or culture, or you have very little in common, there's a commonality that stretches across the human, the human experience. And part of the challenge of getting to know folks from all around the world is, is having the courage to go into those uncomfortable places where you got to get to know each other. And so I was remembering this as these guys were sitting there, and I walked up to the table and I said, hi, my name is Keith, and we entered into this very awkward conversation. And, uh, and so I was asking questions, and they were asking questions, and none of us understood each other. And so eventually I said, what, do you, what did you do in Syria? He was from Syria, he's a Kurdish man from Syria. So what did you do in Syria? And he said, Salesman. 
Oh, I said, okay, what did you sell? Were you a produce, you know, were you uh, clothing, car, what, what, you know, what, what is it that you, um, what, you, you uh, what did you sell? And so he was like, yes. <laughs> I said, okay, how do we get at this? And so, you know, for a minute there, we were struggling back and forth to understand each other. <laughs> and then he, his daughter was there, who speaks like fluent English. So he goes, call that her name, comes over, and she said, yeah, I'm asking your dad, what does he do for a living? And, you know, it's, uh, Kurdish language. And she goes, oh, he's a farmer. <laughs> like, we're like so far from understanding each other, you know? Uh, all that to say, you know, we're, we are studying for the next year or so, we're studying Jesus, getting to know our Lord, getting to know who he is and what he was about. And uh, one of the most profound things that I, I've learned over the course of coming to know Jesus is that his world is very strange to us. He lived in a different time, in a different culture, spoke a different language, and it takes some work to get to know. So for example, you, know, you're, you might know the parable that Jesus tells about a son who wanted his father's inheritance before his father died. And so he asked his father, it's a very shameful thing, you know, give me your inheritance now, which is basically to say in that culture, I wish you were dead. And the story ensues about how this father waits and waits and waits for his son to come back to him, and there's this great embrace. And we'll, we'll get into that story in the coming months as we talk about Jesus. Uh, but in our culture today, if I were to say, Dad, look, I need, some, I need a loan. I need some money. I need my inheritance now to get through. My dad would feel honored. He would feel like, yes, I can, I can, I can you know, see my son flourishing in the world. And, and, and you see how this happens. This is, a, this is a, almost a uh, dichotomous culture, cultural phenomenon. So anyway, that's just the tip of the iceberg when it gets to knowing the coming Jesus, or getting to know Jesus. And so, you know, in the past number of weeks, we've talked about, just at the, you know, we've begun talking about Jesus, how if, if we really take in his message and listen to his claim of being Lord, it kind of disturbs us. It just, like his, his, his call to discipleship is something that he asks us to give our, our all and to, to take all of our dreams and, and, and put them away and take on his dreams for us. This disturbs us a little bit. And so we saw him coming in uh, into Jerusalem on a donkey at Passover time, festival he loved, great holiday, uh, uh, the holiday that he, that he loved since childhood on which he's going to die. And we saw him coming into Jerusalem riding the donkey, proclaiming his king, that he's king. Uh, we talked about how he grew up in Nazareth last time and that how um, he kind of grew in wisdom and favor and that people generally respected him as he grew up in his hometown. And we talked about how coming to know Jesus is like coming to know someone who will finally make sense out of our complex and, and harried lives. And that if we want to know Jesus, the one who's in heaven right now with whom we pray and relate, he is the same man, the same person that lived as a Palestinian Jew 2,000 years ago. And so part of, part of intimacy with Jesus is praying and praying and, and coming into a place where we find intimacy in our heart with him. But part of it's recognizing you're the same guy who lived 2,000 years ago. You are a Lord. You're seated at the right hand of God on his throne, and yet you lived in a time, in a place. And coming to know that time and that place is super important if we're going to come to terms with Jesus, if we're going to come to terms with who he is and, and find intimacy with him. So today, I want to just dive in a little bit uh, and talk more about this, getting to know the world that he lived in. 
getting to know Jesus better by learning the world that he lived in. So here's a, here's a map of, uh, of the Roman world. Jesus lived in the Roman, uh, under the Roman rule, and you can see Italy right here, and Roma is right here. And this, for all intents and purposes, was the known world to the Romans, and they had conquered it all. Uh, and way over here, you know, you pass Greece into Turkey, what's modern-day Turkey here, and you come down on the westernmost side of the Mediterranean, and you get Syria. Right here, you see Syria. And then you come down and you get Israel, which is this little green spot. So we'll focus in here. Here's the sea, here's Syria, and here's Israel. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and then Nazareth is kind of up here, right on the border between Israel, Palestine, and Syria. Now, I'll say all this because we're going to do some, I'm going I'm to illustrate to you a little bit about how coming to know Jesus' world and the world that he lived in helps us understand his teachings, his lordship, and, and come to in, uh, further intimacy with him. So here we go. We're going to jump in. Uh, basically, the, the, the history goes like this. Rome comes, or Greece, uh, Greece, before the Roman times, Greece in about 300 BC becomes the superpower of the world. Alexander the Great. You remember Alexander the Great? He was the one that came and united all of Greece 300 years before Jesus lived, and then united all of the world and, and conquered it, basically. And he, his, his kingdom stretched way down into India. Now, what happened was Alexander wasn't on the throne very long. He died very shortly into his reign after he'd conquered pretty much the whole known world. And so what happened was there wasn't a successor. There wasn't an emperor who came after him. His kingdom was sectioned off into little bits and pieces. And there's 12 of his generals in his army, of Alexander's army, that got, got the bits of land that what, made up his empire. And so we have a group of people, uh, one of his 12, takes over Syria. Syria becomes a very powerful kingdom among the 12 kingdoms that, inherit, uh, that the world inherited from Alexander. And another king, Ptolemy, was king of Egypt. And Israel was sort of sandwiched in between. Now, what happened over the next hundreds and hundreds of years, and we get, and again, this is so important as we get into the story today. Here's where Jesus lives. What happened over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years is Syria would come down and they'd take over the land. And then, then Ptolemy in Egypt wouldn't have much of it, and so he'd gather forces and he'd come back and take over Israel. And Israel was caught in between this warring, these two warring kings and kingdoms for hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. Now, we know partly... Uh, of what the fate of these kingdoms will be because Daniel, in the book of Daniel, prophesied about both Syria and Egypt. He says, these are like the toes of a feet. He sees an image of a great, of a great uh, statue and he goes bit by bit explaining which kingdoms are which part. He says, the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with clay, so will they mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together. This is about... Syria and about Egypt, these two warring kingdoms. And they'll mix with, in marriage, and they'll try to work it out, but they're not going to hold together. They're not going to ever get along with each other, other, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, says Daniel, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. 
nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And Daniel's prophesying way back hundreds and hundreds of years before, there's going to be these two warring kingdoms, and the king of the world, a kingdom will be established that will never end. And by the time of Jesus, people were asking the live question, which kingdom is this, Daniel? It hasn't come about to be yet. Is it is it Rome? Is Rome going to be the superpower that will exist forever? And a lot of people thought Rome was the, the fulfillment of this. But in walks Jesus into this expectation and hope. And so along comes Antiochus Epiphanes IV. I don't know why the 1726 is on there. I just found this. This is a, uh, Antiochus is the king of Syria a couple, uh, about 150 years before Jesus lives. Uh, he inherits the throne from his father, Antiochus III. And uh, his father, Antiochus III, had this policy. And here's the policy. I, I, I can conquer people, but they can keep their own religion. They can keep their own beliefs. But Antiochus IV comes and does a turnabout on his heel with that policy. And he goes about conquering Israel and forcing them to do all sorts of things they don't want to do. And we have this recorded in the book of Maccabees. So we'll just see here. And again, all of this story is very alive in Jesus' mind and in Nazareth, where we'll get to. So in comes Antiochus, destroys Jerusalem, makes them do whatever he wants to do. Her temple, Jerusalem's temple, lay desolate as a wilderness. Her festivals were turned to mourning, her Sabbaths to a reproach her honor to contempt. Her present dishonor was equaled only by her past renown, and her pride was turned to mourning. The king issued an edict throughout his empire. His subjects were all to become one and abandon their own customs. Everywhere the nations complied with the royal command, and sadly, says the writer of Maccabees, and many in Israel willingly adopted the foreign cult, sacrificing to idols and profaning the Sabbath. And if this cultural violence wasn't enough, the 15th day of, in the month of Kislev in the year of 145, this is 145 years before Jesus was born, the abomination of desolation was set up in the altar. Antiochus IV comes into the holy temple, which we've been talking about, and puts up a pagan idol in the holy of holies. In the towns throughout Judea, pagan altars were built. Incense was offered at the doors of the houses and the streets. Every scroll of the law that was found was torn up and consigned to the flames. And anyone discovered in possession of a book of the covenant conforming to the law was by sentence of the king condemned to die. And it gets worse. In accordance with the royal decree, they put to death women who had their children circumcised. Their babies, their families, and those who had performed circumcisions were hanged by the neck. This is Jesus' ancestors, his great-great-great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. Can you get a sense of what... what the town of Nazareth, the people now, could you get a sense of what they thought about the Syrians? They'd, they'd done this 145 years before. And so what was the right response? We, we hear this story in the Maccabees of a great uprising and a great pushing back. A, a guy named Ju, Ju, Judas Maccabeus came and he became king of all of Israel and he pushed back the Assyrians back north. And, uh, and this is what, what a proper response looks like for a Jewish person. A Jew came forward in full view to offer sacrifice on the pagan altar at Modin. In obedience to the royal decree, the sight aroused the zeal of Matthias. This guy named Matthias was so angry that this Jew would, would co-opt their faith and just worship without, without dying for his faith. And shaking with passion and in a fury of righteous anger, he rushed forward and cut him down on the very altar. 
And the same time, he killed the officer sent by the king to enforce sacrifice and demolished the pagan altar. That, that's the proper response in a Jewish mindset to a pagan coming in and doing what Syria did. That's, that's the type of person, that's the type of king that the Jews were ready to follow. Someone who did this. But in walks Jesus. I'll go back just one slide here. In walks Jesus 146 years later. And word is spreading about him. A report is going widely that here's a Jewish guy who's saying some pretty intense things. He is the king of the Jews. He's the one to come and to take back our lives from the oppression of the Romans. And he's doing, and more than that, he's doing miracles. He's healing. He's healing people that have blindness. He's healing infirmities. And guess what? Everyone in Nazareth thought, this is our guy. This is our guy from Nazareth. And so he shows up, and here's what's going to happen. He's going to come back as an adult after starting out his ministry. He's going to come back into his hometown of Nazareth, and he's going to say a few things, and the people are going to be so excited that Jesus, the king of the Jews, is here. But then on an instant, on the turn of a heel, they're going to be so angry at him that they're about ready to kill him. So ready for this? Here we go. Luke 4.16, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And we get this sense that Jesus had been going around on an itinerant missionary, as an itinerant missionary from church to church to church, or synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, and preaching, proclaiming, and healing. And so he comes to his own, as was his custom on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And remember, Jesus loves the scriptures. Jesus had spent his childhood devouring and memorizing and soaking in the scriptures. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And so here he comes. Someone hands him the prophet Isaiah. And you know, scrolls aren't like books. They were kind of rolled up on both ends like this. And so Jesus thinks to himself, okay, they've given me Isaiah. What can I say out of Isaiah that will help them understand who I am? And he rolls it all the way back to the end of Isaiah to chapter 61. And he says, um, and he reads this verse to them. That somehow, the good news of God is that someday he'll come and release oppressed and lift up the poor. And the people in Nazareth were fixed because you know what? The people in Nazareth, there's plenty of people who were poor there. People who had nothing. People who the Roman Empire at this point was coming and stealing from and taxing and taking from. They were, the hunger pains in their bellies were very real. The people in Nazareth knew poverty. And they knew oppression. They knew that, that they couldn't be who they all were created to be um, and worship God freely with the Romans. And so they're going, yes, we know this, Jesus. We're blind. We have blind people. We have oppression. We're not free. And you're here to rescue us. And their eyes are fixed upon him. They can't wait to hear what he says next. And so here's what happens. He says to them, today this reading is fulfilled in your hearing. That's all. That's all he says. Today, this prophecy from Isaiah is fulfilled. And everyone knew what he was talking about. Our coming king is here. He's the one that's going to stand up and free us. And he's 
promising us that he's fulfilled this from Isaiah. And everyone, it says, was amazed at the great words that came from his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? He grew up among us. And Jesus has them on edge. They loved it. They were like all ready to follow him and support him. And then something happens. Jesus, almost metaphorically, takes some sand from the ground and throws it in their eyes. Like he's going to say something that's going to turn them from rejoicing in, in jubilation into wanting to kill him. Okay? What could Jesus possibly say at this point to make them turn that quickly upon him? Here's what he says. Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. Again, these people aren't saying this to Jesus. Like He's like, I'm going to guess that you guys are going to say this to me. He's like not even giving them the, the benefit of the doubt, not even giving them the chance to respond. He's like assuming that they're, they're going to say this to him. So these people didn't say it. He said, how many of us like that when someone's like, they don't even give you the chance to explain yourself. They just assume the worst of you. It's like, this is what it seems like is happening here. He said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And, and this is what he's saying. I think you guys are going to tell me to heal my hometown, heal yourself, my hometown, heal people like you did here. And then, and then he, this is it. This is, what, this is where it turns. He says, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in a prophet's hometown. But the truth is, and this is where he goes, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Jesus is making an observation. There's lots of people that were poor in Elijah the prophet's time way back in history. But they were, wasn't sent to Israel. It was sent to a pagan to heal the pagan. Oh. And then he says, oh, it was like the, the best verse, and I forgot to put it on. And then he says, uh, oh, I forgot. okay, I'll just narrate it. God, God's like, just narrate it, Keith. Okay. And then he says, and there were many lepers in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was healed but Naaman the Syrian. Get this? See all the pieces coming together here? Jesus is saying, way back in the time when Elisha was ministering, he didn't heal Israel. He healed the Syrians and all of the cultural hate and all of the cultural anguish and all of the hope of a king that would destroy the nations came flooding up into their hearts. And here Jesus is saying, I'm not here to cure Israel, I'm here to cure the Syrians. Get that? You hear that? You hear the weight of that? <laughs> the truth is, in other words, here's what I'm really about, guys. Here's the rift between us. You don't even know it. You're so happy with me because you think you understand who I'm going to be and what kind of God I'm going to be and what kind of Messiah I'm going to be. But there's a rift, there's a rift between us because I'm not here to just heal you, I'm here to heal our oppressors. My, my job is way bigger than to come along and to take a few people who need to see and make them see again. My job is to help the Syrians see again. 
They're blind. They don't understand the living, true God. My message is for them as well. And the people of Nazareth can't hear it. They can't take it in. They can't understand why Jesus would be saying this to them. And so here's, here's what it is. I think Jesus is comparing the people of Nazareth to all those people into the time of Elisha and Elisha who didn't get healed, but these other pagans did. And they get so upset that there's rage. The Greek word is thumos. I mean, this is like there's a fire that gets lit inside of me with such anger. And, um, and, and they take him here. They, they push him out of the synagogue. They drive him out. And they take him to the edge of Nazareth on which the city was founded. This is a picture of Nazareth. Jesus grew up in this lovely environment. We think of him as in some shadowy Nazareth, which is just like a little village. No, it had this beautiful vista, and there's a great valley outside of Nazareth. And here's the cliffs outside of Nazareth. And they drive him here to this place, ready to throw him off these cliffs because they were so angry about what he just said. And it says, I love this, and it says, Jesus walked through the mob and off and away. It's like, can, can you imagine that? They're so angry, they're ready to throw him off, and Jesus is like, all right, I'm done here. <laughs> and off he goes. Okay, that's amazing, by the way. Um, part of the reason why that's amazing is because these are the people that are his hometown, the people who are supposed to follow him and supposed to see that their, their, their God was too small. The way that they wanted freedom was too small. Jesus' picture was bigger than that. And they were the people who were supposed to love him and, and be there for him the most. And yet they're ready to kill him. This is a deep rejection. Can you imagine your family just standing by and watching the, your hometown people getting ready to throw you off a cliff and then doing nothing? He's like, not only is he probably feeling deeply rejected, he's just probably feeling so much sorrow because they can't see, they don't have eyes to see. In fact, they are blind, but he's not gonna heal them. Oh yeah, and he walks through the middle of them. So, so what does this mean? What does this mean about Jesus? And what does this mean about God? And what does this mean about his world? And I was struggling through that this this week. You know, what, what, is, what does this mean? It means that Jesus' kingdom the one he came to establish. He wasn't just interested in freeing Israel. He was interested in healing the people who were themselves oppressing the world. This is, this is a profound thing that we have to understand about Jesus. His, his, his ministry, his kingship isn't small. It isn't local. It isn't uh, favoring one nationality over another. It's anytime you see someone who you hate you love. This is where Jesus starts to disturb us. Anyone who persecutes you, he says, pray for them. And we begin asking these deep questions about Jesus. What, is it, what, do, you, what do you have in mind here, Jesus? What does this say about his God? It means that his God is God as the whole world. He's not the God of one people, or the God of one people group, or the God of one nation, or the God of one country. He's the God of everyone. And any person, even today, this is, this is why Jesus was surprising then, and that's why he's surprising now. Anyone who we look at and say, you are my enemy, you, are, you deserve to be bombed off the face of the earth, Jesus says, I am interested in their healing as a way to free the world, not their destruction. This is the Jesus that, that we give us. What does it say about his world? It says, it says that his world is complex. It says his world 
is something that we don't quite understand until we go into the history books, until we go and understand his, his, his culture and his religion and all the things which he came to speak into. Jesus wasn't, he was speaking to us. In the back of his mind, he was thinking of us, speaking to us. But he was far more speaking to the times and the issues of his day. And when we come to understand the issues of his day and the issues of his time, when we come to do a little bit of learning his language, learning his culture, we, we can do more than just play this game with Jesus. <laughs> we can come to know him and know him more deeply and intimately. What does this mean for us? I just want to take a moment here to, to dip into this word hostility. Because I think that if we really follow Jesus, if we really understand who he is and what he's about, any type of hostility in the world becomes something that's opposite to his kingdom. Hostility. How does hostility work? Hostility works like this. Someone did something to me. Someone made me feel a certain way. And so I'm going to respond in kind. And we have great national hostilities in our world today. And we have very relational, intimate hostilities. It means, it means I'm, I'm not going to revere someone. I'm not going to see a son or daughter, daughter of God in them. I'm not going to hope for their healing, even if they wounded me. And my hope, guys, my hope for this church is as we follow Jesus, as we can know him, that this piece of the puzzle, this hostility piece, is something that we can come to terms with. Any hostility that is found within this little community of people is going to be the leaven of undoing for the great work that we want to do. If, if we haven't reached a place where I can see you and see your quirks and your uniqueness and your uh, eccentricities and go, I love that. If we can't revere one another uh, in the midst of doing community, what, what's this all for, right? Now, the good news is, is like the hostility level in this community is like way down almost to, to nil compared to what I've seen in other Christian communities. Like we're, we're doing okay. But I want to keep inviting us because what, what happened with the people in Nazareth? They, they had this thumos, this hostility. When, when, when someone did something that was outside of their expectations, when someone, someone said something about God that they didn't quite understand, when someone made them upset, they had this great hostility, and they would do anything to sort of prove that they were right or prove their way is right. So I just want to invite us, because as we go forward, we're walking out into a context here, into a world where hostilities are the norm, right? I mean, you can, you can walk around Thunder Bay and just sort of like point out glaring hostilities that exist in this community. And part of our work is to undo them. This is to say, there's a hostility. As the people of God, we're going to walk into it and undo it. It takes a lot of sacrifice. It takes a lot of rejection. But this is the work God is calling us to do if we're going to follow this Jesus. And I think we can do it. Can we revere one another as sons and daughters of God enough? Past our difficulties and past our differences. Now, I'm not saying that we just put up with each other's sinfulness. Like, at a certain level, you, you can maybe see someone's quirk and go, yeah, that's probably not, not good for them. They're probably hurting themselves and hurting lots of people by having this addiction or behavior in their life. And, but we don't point it out and make them feel less. We point them out and won't say, we want you to be healed. I want you to be healed in whole and out, out of reverence, out of love. I'm, I want to build you up. And that's what this Christian community is about. That's who this Jesus that we serve is about. And so how do we do that here in this community? How do we do that 
in the hosti- amidst the hostilities that we find around us? I don't know. It's probably a lot of rejection, a lot of hurt. But that's what this is about. That's what this Christian thing is about, is coming together as a community to say, uh, the way that we do things and understand things is way bigger than any, any small version of God that would just continue to pit people against people. God's got a bigger picture. He wants to heal the oppressor. He wants to heal the oppressed and free them. And think about this. What was his great commission? Five things. I'm here to preach the gospel to the poor. They, will, they shall be poor no longer. That's part of our commission as followers of Jesus. Preaching to the poor in a way that says, we as a community are taking our, our fullness of our strength and wealth, and we're going to um, lift as, you up out of poverty as much as possible. Second, I'm here to proclaim freedom for the captives. People are captive here. In the Western world, we mostly see it in the terms of addictions, things that people can't quite get out of their life. Our job is to say, we're here to free you from your addictions. How big is that? Next, I'm here to um, give sight to the blind. This is big. This is, I think, sometimes true, literal, spiritual healing. God does that sometimes. But also it's, it's spiritual as well. Where are people blind? Where can't they quite see? Where are they blind in their life? Our job is to help them see clearly through first bringing them to intimacy with Jesus. And then he says, I'm going to bring freedom to the captives. He just, I don't know why he says that twice, but it's, he must think it's important. If, the, if there are people who are captive to things, they're to go free in his kingdom. And finally he says, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The jubilee, the great jubilee, the great um, coming home of God's people, and the great um, embrace, which is to say, God has been waiting for years and years and generations for people who are far from him, who have taken his wealth and squandered it, to come home and call his children, to embrace as the, as the um, prodigal son was embraced. This is a big, a big, a big vision, and yet Jesus gives us to this as a mandate. And so how do we do this? We first begin by taking any hostilities that arise between us and we replace them with reverence for one another. And then we, as a strong, unified voice that's doing that, we go out into the world where there's hostility and say, God has a great invitation. These hostilities don't have to exist for generations and generations. They can stop now in in the cross and in the Christian way, in the Christian community. So, a lot, that, a lot to say, which, um, just out of making the large point of, let's get to know Jesus by knowing his world, knowing the world he lived in. Because when we do, we see that the gospel and his way is so much more disturbing, so much more powerful, and so much more comprehensive than we first realized. And this is part of the, the, the loveliness of getting to know his world. Now, this, this weekend, upcoming weekend, there is going to be a seminar called The Authority of Scripture. And we're going to keep on talking more about what does it look like to get to know Jesus' world and why is getting to know the world of the Bible so important. You need to sign up for that. So you can sign up um, on the Grassroots Facebook page. There's a link there. Um, there's something in the newsletter. And if, if, you, if you, none of that makes sense to you, just come and talk to me. I'll sign you up. Um, and also, uh, there's a new initiative which the community here is establishing. It's called Sabbath and Service. This is, this is the great dream. 
how can we as a community together move outside of our grassroots community and do a little more in the community together for good? And one of the things of the many that the group who's planning this is planning for the fall is a Thanksgiving meal for the Syrians. These folks are here. They don't have family. I mean, they have each other, but they don't have their broader family. And so this community is going to gather a bunch together and just provide and provide space for a Thanksgiving meal for these guys. So if you're interested in helping out with that, you can talk to me as well. I'll direct you to the proper people who are planning this. Uh, but we're doing this, guys. We're stepping out. We're going to begin this great process of what it looks like to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor among us. So I'm excited about this, and um, I tremble at this. I tremble at what this means for us. But uh, what may seem big to us is uh, possible for a God who could raise his son from the dead. God's with us. So uh, we come to his table once again, as we do every week, because he reminds us that this project, this doing this Christian thing, which is way bigger than we often realize, he's like, it's going to take sacrifice and it's going to take rejection by the very people who maybe you think would embrace you the most. And so he says, don't forget that I walked this road before you. Don't forget I was rejected before you. Don't forget that I was shown hostility before you. And so come together every, every week to remember my sacrifice, that I've given my body, I've given my blood, I've shed my blood, and, and you become my people as I, as I lead you. So I don't know what it is this morning that you need to bring to the throne of God. My sense is that perhaps some of us this morning need to think of hostilities in our life. Even, dare I say, hostilities in this room if there are any. Um, who do I feel hostile towards? What have they done to me? Maybe, maybe the first step towards undoing that hostility is just to bring that up to the, the table today and to say, God, yeah, I, I, I have hostility here. Please help me figure out how to undo it. Or maybe, maybe you're hostile because someone has done something to you and you need to forgive them. You just need simply to say, you don't owe me that anymore. That's a, that's a huge work to be done in a community that is going after this great vision. So maybe it's, God, I have been holding on to something, hostility, and I want to be freed from it. Or maybe it's something completely different. I don't know what it is today that God has spoken to you, but uh, the invitation is open. Come take the, the body of Christ, dip it into the juice, and uh, come to the altar of the living God who's here with us and uh, is leading us onward. So the table is set, brothers and sisters, and everyone here is welcome.